I'm Hannah Young, Deputy Consul General at the British Consulate General in New York, and welcome to Brits in the Big Apple. My guest today is Andrew Wally, an award-winning architect and chairman of the British company Grimshaw Architects. Andrew is known for his incredibly creative and ecological designs here in New York, in the UK and further afield. In 2001, the same year he established the Grimshaw office in New York, Andrew won the international design competition for the Experimental Media and Performing Arts Centre, and two years later won a second competition for the Fulton Centre, a six-storey light-reflecting funnel, which I had the privilege of calling my local subway station when I first arrived in the city. In the UK, Andrew's first major breakthrough was designing the Waterloo International Terminal in London, the UK's busiest train station. But his most seminal work, in my opinion, has got to be the Eden Project, a truly stunning piece of architecture. In a recent article celebrating its 20 year anniversary, Andrew remarked that he noticed how washing up bubbles connected together and based the design on soap bubbles. Amazing. More recently, Andrew's led Grimshaw's efforts to set hugely important targets around net zero, reflecting the firm's long-standing emphasis on tackling climate change. And he's been instrumental in the firm's work on the Expo 2020 Sustainability Pavilion entitled Terra, a design that's net zero energy and water and will act as a living laboratory, inspiring its visitors to live more sustainably. Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Brits and the Big Apple. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hannah. I'm looking forward to having our chat. Um, tell us uh, about your career journey so far and how My... you ended up in the world of architecture. Oh, well, I, uh, as, as a child, um, well, I was fortunate I went to a school that put a lot of emphasis on creativity and art. Um, but really, it was my own kind of inventing things. I used to like making things and building things, uh, you know, starting off with Meccano, as, as we all often do. But also, I, start, I got a book on how to build bridges out of wooden rope. And so, I, uh, in, in, in the Scouts, I used to build these sort of bridge structures and suspension structures. If I remember once, I uh, was asked to build a bridge, a bridge across our kind of river because um, Princess Anne was visiting as part of the kind of event. And uh, we, we got it finished just in time. I remember her coming to have a look at it and, and I invited her to walk across it, which of course she didn't, thankfully. <laughs> and it must be about 10 minutes later, there was an almighty bang and uh, part of it broke and the whole thing kind of collapsed. Oh, so no. so uh, not everything always works as you might intend, but often you learn from mistakes. So uh, that, that, anyway, that's how I uh, really got into wanting to, to be an architect and to you know, design and build things. Um, Wow. And at uh, my art, my uh, art teacher went to the Glasgow School of Art, and she was quite adamant. That's where I had to go. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of discussion. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, I have to say, it was a wonderful uh, place to to start your career as an architect. So that was really really important for me. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, and then I went to London, uh, the AA, and had a also very important kind of period. And um, was a long term fan of the work that Nick had been doing. Uh, and particularly sort of industrial architecture. So I applied uh, literally the day I finished and graduated from the AA and, and didn't really have a job actually, but he, he sort of made one. <laughs> and so I, I joined Nick then uh, in a practice that was probably about 12 people, I think then. Wow. Uh, you know, we're now at 600 around the world. So it's uh, been a, an interesting career uh, there. 
over the last, uh, I'm trying to count up now, so, well, actually I wouldn't say, <laughs> a few decades. Wow, that's amazing. And I love the idea of um, building bridges with Meccano as a start. Um, how did you how did you come to be in New York? Was that a calculated move on your part or, or was that circumstance? Uh, in a way. <laughs> so I, I really um, did a lot of our international work competitions mm. and so on. And our first project in the US uh, we were one actually was in the Midwest, start in the middle mm. and, and work outwards, which is an unusual way to work maybe. Mm. Um, but we did a very interesting research center in St. Louis um, on plant sciences. Uh, but I, I really felt doing that, trying to work out of London and to do it was just very difficult for us. And we made a decision. We wanted to continue working in the US with this huge potential. Um, and really the best place for us would be New York because of its you know, connectivity to London. Uh, and so we set up a very small team of two <laughs> uh, and uh, were fortunate to be invited to do a competition, which you mentioned at the beginning uh, in 2001 for the Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center, uh, which we won. And so really that was the start of our, our work. But I was still based in London. And so I was flying backwards and forwards every four weeks. Um, and uh, also uh, flying, but uh, we were also setting an office up in uh, Melbourne, so I was also flying there. So it was a bit, 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 oh, bit too much, bit too much on a plane. Um, but again, you know that we, that was it was a very interesting project. Uh, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, too, then of course we won that in June, and I remember being we were all over actually, uh, and at, at the top of the uh, World Trade Center on the 10th um, of September, celebrating our first client meeting. And I got on the plane, flew back uh, wow. that morning, uh, a few hours later. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the next day was the tragedy. So, so we found ourselves in a very changed uh, downtown New York, mm. um, like quite challenging, uh, but, but we felt it was such an important that we were so glad we were actually there um, and took part in the competition for what came out of that, which was part of a stimulus from the federal government, which was to, to rebuild the Fulton Center. Because there wasn't actually a station there. It was actually just used entrances. And, and often you find uh, train stations and investment in rail and infrastructure, which is very topical, of course, now, mm -hmm. uh, can be a huge catalyst for change and regeneration. And so downtown was already challenged, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, at that time. And so they, they set about doing this um, a uh, new project for a completely new kind of transit centre, which was, you know, to become the Fulton Centre. So like, again, against, I think it was a bit, I mean, against the odds, we were definitely punching above our weight, we, we won it. Um, and I was still intending to fly backwards and forwards, basically, uh, as much as I could, because we just built, my wife and I built our own house in London. Um, and the MTA, I remember, after we'd won and they were looking through all the details, said, well, what are all these flights doing? Why, why do we have so many flights? <laughs> <laughs> and we said, well, because he lives in London. He said, oh, no, 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 you have to understand, if you want to do this, he has to live in New York. <laughs> because it's going to be fast track and, and there's no time for travel. You have to be here. So uh, fortunately, my very understanding wife said, I'll go with you to have a look. And we uh, came to New York a week later to have a look around and decided if we were going to do it, then we just, you know, it was a year, they said, we would uh, move our children here. I thought it would be a good experience for them, because 
I was moved around the world as a child quite a bit. Um, and, you know, they would have a year in New York and uh, experience something different, and then we'd all go back to London. That was the idea. And that was 2003. Uh, we're, we're obviously still here. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. And and I mean, what what? Tell me why you've stayed here. What, clearly, well, this is now your home. But what does I, it mean for you to be yes. an architect here? <laughs> well, I think it, what we, we, we were lucky. Often timing is everything. Uh, and not long after, of course, Mayor Bloomberg was elected, um, and he had a very interesting outlook on improving New York City's public realm. And so they did a competition uh, to, to encourage architects to take part in public projects. And, and we were very lucky to be one of eight selected out of a list of 300, I think, um, to be considered for public projects. And so uh, through that, we won the Queen's Museum, uh, which is out in Flushing Meadows. And then also uh, he decided to improve New York Street's uh, furniture, you know, bus stops, newsagent stands, and, you know, for 20 years, they've been trying to upgrade uh, the system. And he had a way of actually making things happen. And again, we were very lucky to win that as a design proposal. Um, so that was, you know, 3,000 bus stops, I think, in total, and all wow. the new stands. And then um, we then th also, th so we, we uh, unusually, I think, for uh, an international architect, most international architects work with private developers doing you know, high-end residential and offices. All of our work is mostly with the city in public work or institutions. Mm. Um, and then we also want a really interesting project uh, in um, the uh, Upper Bronx for New York's first water treatment plant. Uh, and, uh, you know, it turned out to be very large. It's actually one of the largest infrastructure projects New York's done, um, several billion dollars. And we had to make it all disappear, basically, uh, and make it look as though it was a beautiful park. Uh, hidden away so we've, I mean, we're still working on it to this day it's been a very very long long-term project um but i mean the nice thing is that they're all projects that serve society which i think is mm. to architecture and mm. it was very nice actually after i think the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 wall street journal did a piece on the sudden influx of international architects um, into New York. And, and, and we were given the award of having the, the most effect on everyday New Yorkers' lives, because we've done so many things, you know, so if you switch on your tap, or I should say faucet, <laughs> it's likely <laughs> the nice fresh water coming out of it has gone through our, um, our uh, you know, treatment plant. And, and as you said, um, Hannah, you use the, you know, have used the Fulton Center. Oh, and when it pours with rain, yeah. I think the three and a half thousand bus shelters are hopefully giving somebody some protection across the city. So for, for us, that sort of work is really what makes us you know, get up in the morning. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple. My guest today is Andrew Wally, chairman of British company Grimshaw Architects. Andrew, you were telling us about why you've stayed in New York for so many years. Well, I, it's, I mean, it's a wonderful place to live um, and you know, such a vibrant yeah. city. And in a way, I'm spoiled because I, I get to spend quite a lot of time in London as well. We have our home in the UK still um, as well. So, so um, I spend, you know, majority of my time here, I was in, in New York, but, but a reasonable amount of time in, in the UK. Although what happened was um, we then started developing other international opportunities. Um, and so I did a lot of the work in, in developing our portfolio in the Middle East and setting up our studio there. So people ask me why, you know, where, where do you live? And I say, well, my wardrobe is in New York. 
<laughs> as is my family, so that must be where I live. But uh, being within very close proximity of JFK uh, is also a key part. So uh, I'm spending quite a lot of time going to JFK and going to different parts of the world as well. But I have to say, I mean, you know, the, the wonderful thing with uh, Terminal 7 and, uh, you know, how small and compact and efficient it is, my, I think my record for stepping off a British Airways plane and uh, getting and walking through my door here is just been just over 40 minutes. So yeah, it has has its advantages. <laughs> um, and I wanted to talk about your uh, focus on climate change because that's something of great relevance to us here at the consulate. We're in the year running up to COP twenty six, which the UK will host. And there, and, and there, yes, the COP. Yeah, and there I am talking about how often I get on a plane and have to fly to different parts of the world. You know. Oh um, well, so, you know. I mean, it's part of business. Well, no, but actually, we do. We are very careful about how we use our flights. And you know, one of the um, when I took over as chairman in 2019, we all made a commitment as partners that we all of our work would be net zero by 2030, which in reality means the majority by 2025. Because actually, we would like to get to regenerative design by 2030. Uh, and I think you've got to walk the talk. If you're talking to your clients and you're you're, you're saying, well, this is what you should do, you've got to be doing it. So. We also, at the end of 2019, made a commitment that our own global operations and all our studios would be net carbon zero, which I'm glad to say we've achieved. We had a, a, quite a good kickstart because, of course, a lot of our international flying also <laughs> went, but we, but we carefully monitored and looked at from an external uh, audits perspective. And obviously we, we deal with the very kind of you know, carbon offsetting and renewable energy and so on. But I think, you know, it's critical. And, and as you said, Hannah, COP26 is going to be a pivotal, I think, conference um, because actually it can't go on further. Uh, and unless everyone as a kind of global community gets together and, and agrees that this is what we need to do, uh, we're into a serious challenge. And, and the UN has already said, it's about three or four years ago, that we must have all of our new buildings at net zero carbon um, by 2030. So we're really just following what the UN's already laid out uh, is something we need to do. But also, um, we will we'll need to retrofit our existing buildings as well you know, to achieve mm. that. So, so a lot of work. And I mean, I think the one thing with the uh, dreadful challenges we've had with COVID-19 and the pandemic is I think it's made everyone acutely aware of our relationship, our fragility, our relationship with the planet but also how you can make massive changes. You know, we've all adapted to this virtual world. Not, 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 not all of it's great, but we made it work. And I think what it does demonstrate is what can be done if you put your mind mm. to it. Mm. Yes, and, and you're right. Um, actually, in many respects, we're incredibly flexible as human beings and we can adapt. Uh, and your, um, your, your, record of achievement at Grimshaw on on this agenda is very impressive but I was also really interested in the way that you build sustainability into your designs I was reading about the um the terror expo in Dubai I think which is um hopefully going to open later this year and I think it's got thousands of solar panels and yes. hundreds of trees as part of it can can you tell us a bit more about how you build net zero into your designs because i think that's really fascinating yeah and it's i mean it's one of four projects we'll be finishing this year that are all net zero one in the us actually in arizona uh one in australia uh, one at uk cambridge university and of course the pavilion 
which should have opened last year, but again, delayed like the Olympics by a year. Um, and it's an interesting one because when we were approached to take part and there was a design competition, quite a few of our partners were skeptical because you don't really think of sustainability in Dubai in the same sentence, a bit of an oxymoron, you know, you think of ski slopes in the desert and that sort of thing. But actually, um, I think we, we also felt if we could demonstrate you can do that in one of the world's most challenging environments, then clearly you can do it anywhere. And the one thing, uh, so we did it without compromise. We wanted to be absolutely self-sustaining. You, you could switch it off grid if you need, need be. I mean, that was our approach. And the interesting thing is that uh, the client there, Expo 2020, took it wholeheartedly and, and have worked very closely with us because it's not unusual for people to then say, well, of course, we can put some PVs on the roof. We don't need to put that many. We, you know, just enough to demonstrate. But no, no, they've done it thoroughly. And, and what I have learned over the several years that we've worked with them is that it's a, a very young and ambitious country um, that set very ambitious goals. You know, they've just got their probe successfully to Mars. Um, they've got a, you know, they've got, actually got a plan to build, build a, an entire uh, colony on Mars, actually, in 70 years' time. So that's a long-term ambition. But as a city, you know, it's appeared in a generation uh, and it's, you know, and it's actually now becoming quite, quite, you know, a very interesting place. So, um, so that was the background. Uh, but of course, to design something like that in, in such a harsh environment is challenging. But part of it's just thinking um, through and being, in, uh, it's more about ingenuity than invention. So a lot of the exhibition doesn't need uh, light, actually they don't want light. So we sunk the buildings, but like an iceberg, half of it sits underground below the desert. Wow. Uh, and then the rest of it, we actually wrap the landscape over the building. So it's under this very heavy insulated roof, which is something similar we did at Eden at the visitor center. And then floating over it is a canopy, which is inspired by a desert gaff tree. And that has 3000 um, PV solar panels on it, which generates about three quarters of the power for the whole building, but not 100%. So when we looked at it, we thought, well, how can we get the rest? And then we came up with this idea of creating these um, energy trees that have the added benefit of um, shading everyone in the landscape. The landscape is such an important part, the grounds around it. Um, but also, like sunflowers, they track the sun, and that actually increases their uh, performance by another 25%. And so the combination of the two uh, provides the entire power requirement um, for the project. And, and as you mentioned, it's got a six-month life where they're expecting to have you know, several million people visiting, so hopefully that will inspire lots of people. But yeah. more importantly, it's actually a long-term permanent science institute um, mm. dedicated to sustainability. Mm. And did I read that you had NASA as part of your advisory yeah, group? We did. We had a little advisory group, which included the uh, Eden Project, Tim Smith and uh, Dennis Bushnell, who's the senior scientist at NASA Langley. And they, they, they have been doing a lot of work. So you also think of NASA as space, but they do a lot more than that. And they've been do, developing work looking at, for instance, um, using plants uh, in the desert to generate both food and, and energy. Um, so, uh, uh, but, but yes, they were very, uh, very good advice, really, in the early stages. Wow. And, and if you think about it, I mean, the International Space Station is completely self-sustaining, isn't it? It has to recycle all its own water and so on. And so that's something we've done at Expo. So we generate a certain amount of water, but most of it's recycled. And I have to say, mm. probably unknowingly, all, all the thousands of visitors every day don't realise that they're 
bringing out a lot of humidity and that humidity then gets captured and you cool the air and then that generates water and the water then goes through a recycling system and off it goes into the building system. So everything's um, you know, carefully uh, closed loops, but, but ultimately it just also you have to design things really efficiently. So, it, mm. so from the start, it doesn't need to use a lot of energy. That's, that's the mm. starting point. So, uh, yeah, and I, I mean, hopefully the real thing is it gets people excited and, and in the same way as Eden. I think when people yes. visit, they get really engaged with the idea of nature and our relationship yes. to the planet. Yes. And, and what, what, has, what has your experience of this and other projects, um, if you could project into the future, what, what has that taught you about the future of architecture and design and sustainability? Well, I think yeah, a number of things. It's an interesting question. So first of all, you know, do you have to build it? <laughs> or does it need to be yeah. that big? Big questions like that. We, we just a couple of years ago opened a museum in Miami called the Frost uh, Museum of Science. And at the beginning of it, we were given an additional grant by the uh, Department of Energy to see how we could reduce the energy of the building because museums use a lot of energy. Um, and we realized that the first thing we could do is actually all the public spaces you know, could be actually an outdoor street just covered by the rain and then cooled by the natural breezes off the sea. So that, that reduced the footprint of the building by more than a third. And it's something we've done you know, now elsewhere on other buildings. So really thinking about in the first instance, how can you, you know, design smart, design so that you uses the least energy and then you sort out the energy requirements after that. But also I would say flexibility and change really really important and I mean a great example is one of Nick's first buildings actually finished in 1977 for Herman Miller an American furniture manufacturer in in Bath and it was designed to change so in the over 40 years they've changed it multiple times the panels could come off they could move they could reorganize the interior so it served them well and then they needed more space we designed them a new building and then we took literally took the panels apart and reconfigured it and we've converted it into the uh, Bath Spa um, School of Art and Design. And, and you know, what was a factory now becomes an amazing creative hub. And so it's now got another, you know, I'm sure uh, rest of the century use as a, you know, and it's that adaptability, which is so important. Um, so if you design things that are too fixed, and, uh, and I think people often get completely fixed up this idea of icons, which I, I find quite annoying. That, you know, it, buildings are there to form a duty, they're, they're, they're to do, have a performance, to, you know, it's in, in the service of society. And if you can um, follow that, then, then they'll have a much better, longer life and be much more useful in the, in the mm. long term. Mm. I love the idea of the flexibility of almost sort of producing the shell to then be able to adapt it, whatever the scenario is that you need. Yeah, and, and fascinating. You about, you know, warehouses, they make great buildings. You get, you know, what was a canning factory turns into kind of really amazing um, residential loft space. So, and then I mean, they are the trendiest yeah. spaces now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think it, it's a real demonstration of why it's so important to be kind of nimble and flexible. Andrew, um, you alluded to it earlier uh, when you were talking about um, the expo being pushed back, but could you tell us about the impact that the pandemic has had on the work of Grimshaw? Well, I think, I mean, what, it, what, it's, what we've seen, I mean, it's accelerated trends that were already in play. Um, that's the first thing, uh, as we're all familiar with, you know, the people working from home. I mean, more than that, I think it was, uh, 
we were already predicting that uh, you know com computer algorithms, machine learning, were reducing the need of large floor plate offices. You know the, the kind of big floor plates full of people on computers aren't, aren't needed in the financial sectors anymore. So that was already having an impact. And then if you then combine it with a, a, an understanding that you can remote work part-time. So I think many organizations are saying, hang on, we don't need that much space. We'll be more flexible and nimble. So we don't, you know, we can actually reduce our requirements by two thirds or a third or whatever. So that's gonna have a big impact, especially in cities such as New York and London, I think, um, because, you know, as financial centers, they're changing in their nature. But, but in my mind, cities you know actually gives a new opportunity in that rather than thinking of cities as a, as a series of buildings to manufacture commerce and make money they should really be vibrant places to live and work and then they'll be successful because young people don't come to new york um just to, i mean they do come to, of course to get a good job and so on but that's not what really pulls them in what pulls them in is the is the vibrant lifestyle you know all, all the, the culture um, spaces the green spaces everything that's going on and so that's what's so important in, in a city and i think what we've seen across the world is that people have come to realize that um that actually the kind of public realm uh the, the roles that city have um for you know a broader spectrum of, of life is so important so uh and 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 again against the background of sustainability because cities are inherently very sustainable if you design in the right way because they're dense you, you can reduce on transit and transport uh, so it gives you the background of doing something really really efficient if you do it in the right way mm. so i think we've now got the opportunity mm. to rethink so in in you know new york and london we're doing it against a, a kind of matrix of what all is already there in other places we're working in the world particularly in china um, but, and the middle east uh, we're starting with a fresh page. So it's a little bit easier to some extent because um, you're starting from scratch, but the challenges are the same everywhere, I think. Mm. So uh, mm. it's, uh, it's an, and I think, you know, I talked earlier about this kind of, it was E.O. Wilson, a famous American uh, writer who, who talked about the biophilia hypothesis, which was about the importance of reconnecting people to nature. And that, you know, if you live in a concrete jungle, it can be quite debilitating mentally. And people crave for parks and, and you know and that's what we've seen i think during the pandemic isn't it mm. so so i think that understanding of the importance of nature and re and reconnecting people to nature is, mm. is you know runs through all of our work but it's so important in the matrix of the city mm. definitely and nature is such a, a crucial part of the cop 26 campaign as well yeah. it's something we're focusing very much on here and finally, Andrew, what, what next for Grimshaw Architects? You've got Expo 2020 opening later this year. What should we look out for? Elsewhere, um, what we're allowed to talk, what talk about. Well, we're doing a very, <laughs> very interesting work with a major technology company in, on the West Coast, which you could, you could search if you use Google. Um, we are doing, I mean, in... in um, in uh, I mean, essentially in Australia, we just won the, the extension of the rail system there. And it's the first time you know, clients come back to us and, and said, we also want you to design, come up with a complete set of design guidelines. So this could be a regenerative piece of design and regenerative bit of infrastructure for, for Sydney. So I think you know, that's um, something that we'll see more, more and more of. Um, so, uh, and of course, in, in the UK, we're working on HS2, which is a long-term project but again 
you know, why is that, that's, you know, the rail connector, I think is really important. And we're doing both ends, Curzon Street in Birmingham and Euston. But Euston is also part of a massive um, opportunity to rebuild that part of London. So I think that, you know, the opportunity of trans transit um, being a catalyst for change in transport oriented design is something we're gonna see a lot more, of course, in the US, I hope, with the new administration's um, kind of promise to develop and support infrastructure. So I hope um, we'll be part of that, um, engaged in that kind of you know, process. Andrew, Wally, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple and we wish you all the very best, including all of your efforts on sustainability and climate. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.